All right, to continue our theme in the Gospel of Christ, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5, as we consider Scripture and the next passage in the book of Romans. It just so happens that the light of this passage shines directly on the work of Jesus Christ to provide salvation through the Gospel. And so how fitting to hear these testimonies and to see how God has changed uh, uh, 12, 12 souls through the Gospel of Christ. You heard five baptism testimonies, seven here. I know that's true of many of you as well, and it's our prayer that we would all come to a clear understanding of the importance of the Gospel here this morning. Romans chapter 5. As we uh, started into the last half of Romans 5 last week, we were only able to cover three verses because they were so packed. Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. And in these verses, we began to see the effects of the sin of the first man who ever existed, Adam. In Romans 5, 12 through 14, Paul begins a contrast that he does not immediately finish. You can see in verse 12, he says, just as, and then he gives four lines, just as this is true, but then he doesn't finish. Um, there's no so also, or something like that as the second part of the contrast. Instead, he breaks away from the contrast to introduce two parentheses. Uh, the first one is what we dealt with in verses 13 and 14, and the point of the first three verses in our passage was, I believe, to demonstrate just how bad Adam has made a mess out of everything for us. Because of his original sin in the garden, we learned in verses 12 and 13, two tyrannical foreign rulers enslaved and damned the world. These rulers were called sin and death by the Apostle Paul. He personifies sin and death. And consequently then, in verses 12 through 14, there was no hope at all. All sinned and death reigned. That's what we saw last week. Very uplifting sermon, wasn't it? This week, however, we come to the final part, and we see something else is reigning. By the time you get to the end of the text, in verse 21, you see that Paul describes grace and life as new rulers reigning through righteousness, leading to eternal life. And so what happens in the second half of this passage, verses 15 through 21, Paul describes how grace and life came to reign in the place of sin and death, and the way uh, has to do with the actions of another man, the greatest man who's ever lived. His name is Jesus. Whereas sin and death ruled over all humanity in the old age of Adam, grace and life now reign because of Jesus. So this text we'll consider today reveals the replacement of two sinister rulers with two benevolent ones. 
This is a true analogy from Paul to describe things how they really are because of the man Jesus. Maybe you've seen a movie before where there was an evil queen, cold, bitter, and the movie was about her being replaced by a warm, benevolent, kind ruler. That's what this text is doing. It's describing how grace comes to reign over sin and death. And so that's what we'll be able to look at here together today. And so I want to start with this second parenthesis in verses 15 through 17. Look there in your Bible. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It's a lot here, but we'll go kind of quickly through it. I think the main point of these verses involves a contrast between the free gift that's given by Jesus and the trespass of Adam. And the gift of God through Jesus, we learn, is no mere equivalent to the one sinful act of Adam. And I think that is true because the effects of the acts of these two men are entirely different. Adam's sin in the garden, we see in the text here, brought judgment and condemnation. That w- those were the results of one man's false step. Christ's act, however, was able to overcome countless or innumerable false steps and trespasses. He's over He's able to overcome all sinfulness. And his act was able to secure something, not condemnation and judgment, but he was able to bring justification. That is, he was able to make us right with God. I liked how one commentator described this, Tom Schreiner. He said, it is one thing to blemish what is beautiful, but it's much harder to set straight what is already crooked. And that's what Jesus did. As a young boy growing up in western Pennsylvania, my grandpa took it upon him to teach me how to shoot a bow and arrow. I love to shoot a bow and arrow. One of my favorite days was when I would get a new half dozen or dozen arrows. We would get aluminum arrows as those would tend to last longer, and and he would take me to different 3D archery shoots where we would practice and compete. It was was great. And I remember holding those arrows, uh, and they were perfect until you missed the target. When you missed the target and you hit something hard, wood, tree, something like that, a lot of times it introduced a bend into the arrow. You could look down the shaft of the arrow and you could see the bend. And when that happened, that arrow was not going to be as accurate as it was before. And so as a, you know, cheap 12-year-old boy without a big budget, 
when I would get an arrow like that with a bend in it, I'd look down that arrow and I'd try to carefully, carefully bend it back, right? Makes sense. I'm going to bend it back, make it just as good as what it was before. But the problem, what normally happened because of my unskillful hands, is I would introduce a second bend into the arrow. So it'd kind of go this way, and then I'd bend it back this way. And that made the arrow even worse. It is just about impossible to take a bent arrow and make it straight again. Adam's work brought destruction, but Jesus came and he made things right again between us and God. Now, there's one other important note I'd want you to see in verses 15 through 17. It's found in verse 17. The beginning of the verse has death reigning, but if you keep reading, by the middle of verse 17, you've got someone else entirely reigning. Okay, and I want you to see this. We're going to return to this in a moment. In the middle of verse 17, it's those who receive the abundance of God's grace, or those who reign. This word receive means that those who receive or accept God's grace in Jesus are the ones who are to be benefited. So keep that in your mind, and then we'll keep on going and we'll return to it. Well, that leads us to the next section where Paul gives a renewed contrast. Remember up in verse 12, he didn't finish it. But now he's going to talk about Adam and Jesus again. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Okay, so as you're still looking at verse 18, that first phrase, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, is Paul's restatement of the contrast in verse 12. All sin, death through sin, uh, through Adam. This, he says one trespass, it's undeniably the first sin of the first man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men and women, all humanity. But when he turns in the next phrase, middle of verse 18, to the act of Jesus and his description of this, interpreters sometimes run into problems. There are two of them. So if you're taking notes, these are the two big problems you've got to deal with in verses 18 and 19 to understand the main point. The first problem is why does Paul describe Jesus' work as one act of righteousness? I don't know if any of you picked that up as we were reading through it. Why does he describe it as one act? Okay, and I'm going to offer some brief thoughts, but the first thing I'll say is he doesn't tell us. He doesn't specifically tell us the answer to the question, why one act of righteousness? The only textual clue is the mention of the one act of Adam. The one act of Adam, I think, is his original sin or trespass, And it's my perspective that that likely leads Paul to describe Jesus' work as one act as well. Okay. Now, if you were to corner me and say, what one act is Paul thinking of? And I had to choose one. 
I would think maybe his death or maybe his resurrection. What one act of righteousness leads to the justification of all men? It may be his death or resurrection. But I think it might be something different. I think instead, this is probably Paul's way of treating the entire life and ministry of Jesus as a single whole, as one great act of righteousness. In other words, when he says one act of righteousness, I think he means the entire first coming of Jesus. He's thinking of it as a whole. Jesus' sinlessness in his life, his commitment to die on the cross, and then his resurrection. But then in verse 18, we run to our second major problem. Okay, in verse 18, we read that justification and life came for all men. You see that in verse 18? Through the one act of Jesus' righteousness. Came for all men. But then in verse 19, Paul concludes that many, which could be translated a numerous amount, a great amount of people will be made righteous. So the question, if you're really digging into this part of Scripture, is which is it? Is it all people will be made righteous, or is it many people will be made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ? And this has perplexed Christians since about the time it was written. Some liberal theologians will even articulate that they believe that verse 18 teaches universalism. For instance, Karl Barth, in his work on Romans in this text, says that all humanity will be saved. That's his view. However, the rest of Scripture doesn't tolerate that. You you need to turn in faith to Jesus to be delivered. So, How do we answer this? How do we deal with this text? I I see two possibilities. Two possibilities. Let let me give them to you. And and I've believed both at different times. Okay, I only believe the second one now. First, it might be that all in verse 18 refers to the sufficiency of Jesus' act in providing the basis for justification for every person. In other words, Jesus' work is sufficient for all, verse 18, the all, but only applied to believers, the many, of verse 19. So this view of Christ's act is then consistent with how many people describe the effects of Jesus' death or the atonement on all people and on the elect. His shed blood is sufficient for all, but is applied to the many. Okay, so that's how some people would explain this. And I think perhaps a good explanation. However, I think there's another way of seeing it that's even better, and that is all refers to those who are in Jesus Christ. All those in Christ. Do you remember verse 17, we saw Paul already expressed that salvation grace is not dispensed universally. It's only to those who receive it, those who take it for themselves. And so this idea would take the word all seriously, but allows verse 17 to help us understand that Paul sees Jesus' righteousness being applied to those who receive it 
and are thus in Jesus. I'd encourage you to write down a reference that you could look at this week and look it up. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 23. It's a a parallel passage, and, and last week, Pastor Thomas read this to us. It's a description, again, of Adam and Jesus, and there's a contrast there, and I think this passage more explicitly tells us what Paul means when he says all will be justified and many will be made righteous. Let, let me read these verses to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23. Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, listen, those who belong to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, the first, uh, at first it's all, but then it's all those who belong to Jesus. That is, Paul has two groups in mind in 1 Corinthians 15. He has all men, all humanity who are in in Adam. And then he has all of the new humanity, those who belong to, are in Jesus Christ. And I think that best describes Paul's use of all and many in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. There are enough indications in these passages that Paul has two groups in mind, humanity and new humanity in Jesus. So, here is the heart of this passage, and here is the main point of my sermon today. It doesn't matter how much or how little sin you've committed, you need Jesus today. You need Jesus for deliverance and salvation. Listen, this text shows us how devastating one sin can be. Of course, it's the sin of Adam, but our sin damns us, and we need Christ, especially when we consider his holy perfection. And Jesus is the only way for you to be justified to be made right with God. And so whether you've told one lie in your life or 1,000, you need Jesus. Whether you've lusted or you've been immoral and adulterous, whether you've coveted or stolen or gossiped or slandered, or been unfaithful to God in some other way. All men and women, every boy and girl here today, needs Jesus. And so the question I ask you is, will you receive him today, or will you reject him? Will you believe in him and turn from your sin? As a preacher, I urge you, I plead with you, to turn to Jesus while there's still time. We live in such unstable days. 
We have no securities that our life will continue on for much longer. Trust in Jesus for all that he has done for you. There may be some young people here today who've grown up in the church and you've heard all of this. You've heard all of the gospel stuff, right? And you're just kind of buying your time. You're waiting until you can pursue what you want. You can go after your things and you can pursue after sin and your own desires. To you as a young person, I say, it will not bring you any fulfillment. It will be empty it will be worthless, and at the end, it will lead to death and hell. Turn to Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus today while you can. There may be a guest here for the first time, and you've heard these testimonies. You've heard people at this mic and that mic, and you heard them explain how God changed their life. It's been my prayer all morning today that there would be a twelfth soul. A twelfth soul who would believe in Jesus Christ today for their salvation and understand how much they need the gospel of Christ. As we finish the chapter, we look at verses 20 and 21, a theological explanation. Verse 20, Now the law came in, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here in verse 20, we're introduced to another character. <clears throat> it's the law. <clears throat> We've already seen that Adam's sin plunged all humanity into condemnation under sin and death, but now we come across what I just described as a secondary or subordinate character, the law. And Paul explains one of the reasons that the Mosaic law came into, or the verb to be slipped into this world, and one of the reasons I think that's given here, this one reason would be shocking to the Jewish people. I think the Jewish people, if you were to ask them, they would say that the law came in to restrain sin, to stop it. God gave it to us so that it would prevent us from sinfulness. Rather, Paul says here, rather than restraining sin, the law actually increased it, increasing our desire to sin and our many sinfulness. You see, once we are made aware of ways that a holy God is offended at our, at our thoughts and words and actions. It's our nature to sin more and more. That is, I think, the point he's making is the law makes us aware not to do, and then we're drawn to those forbidden things. But God's purpose in giving the law in verses 20 and 21 is not just stated in verse 20. I, I, I think it doesn't stop there, but it, he explains but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That is, God's purposes in giving the law were ultimately so that, it, it, yes, it increased sinfulness, but he did all of that so that grace might superabound, so that it would be victorious over sin, and so that uh, it would accent the grace of God that's been given to us. 
So the law made matters worse so that we're thoroughly condemned in sin upon sin so that Paul could describe it this way in verse 21. He has sin reigning in death. Sin is reigning in the sphere or the realm of death. But then grace came and it reigns through righteousness. It leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I liked how one commentator said this. He said, death may have reigned in the old age, but now a greater power has invaded the world. Now grace reigns through Jesus' righteousness. As we close, I ask you, won't you turn to God to experience God's grace? Grace and life are much better rulers than sin and death. And you can only experience grace and life through our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray the final prayer before we sing to close. As we close with heads bowed and eyes closed, I ask you this. Will you be the 13th soul that we can rejoice in today? Why would you remain in sin under the consequences of death? Your sin and desires promise you joy and fulfillment, but it will be emptiness and devastation for you. Your sin destroys harmony with God and makes you the subject of God's wrath against sin. Yet God loves you, and He sent His only Son for you to rescue you from sin and death and hell. And I need to tell you that Jesus did die on the cross, but he didn't do it just to do a noble thing. No, Jesus was tortured in sheer agony and was subject to sharp pain that destroyed and crushed him because he knew there was no other way for you to be delivered. In this quiet moment, I urge you to pray Something like this. Lord, I believe in you. I hate my sin. And I want you. I believe that you died for my sin. And you were raised by God for my sin so that I could be freed. Save me, Lord, today. I want to belong to you. I want to be in Jesus today. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the sweet testimonies. I thank you for the young people who were baptized today. I thank you for how each young person Baptized today represents a soul 
that you snatched away from sin and death by Jesus. I thank you for the adults who gave testimonies today. And each one of them pointed to the fact that they're a sinner, they need to be saved, and that they accepted Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here today, maybe it is one of the young people, maybe it is a guest, maybe it's someone who'd been coming for some time. Lord, I pray that they would believe in you, that they would turn from their sins, they would believe that you died and you rose again for them. Lord, we thank you for the glories of the gospel, for this focus and meditation today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.